Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. Um, uh, it, this week, it's brought to you by uh, the wonderful and talented people and wonderful and talented finders of talented people, uh, Zip Recruiter. Uh, we'll hear more about them in a little bit. Uh, first of all, I want to get it out of the way right now. If you're listening to this at National Review Online, that's great. Good for you. But it'd be better for us. It'd be better for the environment. It would be better for almost all attractive and cute quadrupeds if you went to Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, one of those places, and actually subscribed to the podcast. Um, it will help you uh, for the men out there who are losing their hair. Your hair will grow back in rich and luxurious ways. And it would be great for us if you have to review at iTunes, all that stuff. Okay, so I said that. Now, um, I should also apologize to the readers. If I sound like I'm a little downbeat and tired, it's because I'm a little downbeat and tired. I had an event for the book in Washington, in New York City uh, last night, and it was co-hosted by AI and NRI, and it was well attended, and thanks everybody for coming, and I appreciate it, um, or everybody who did come. There are going to be some public events coming up, and I hope uh, people will go to my website and, and uh, check it out and look for that. Um, this is the last week before pub date, which is April 24 and reviews and whatnot are starting to come in. I had a big excerpt of the cover store cover piece of national review was a, was a much truncated version of the introduction of the book. Um, the book being suicide of the West. And so anyway, first of all, thank you to everybody who's pre-ordered it. It means a lot. I don't think there's a good shot of me coming out and beating Jim Comey on the bestseller lists, at least not the first week. But I should point out that, first of all, if basically everybody who listened to this podcast would go out and buy a copy of Suicide of the West right now, or not go out, just go on Amazon or wherever fine books are sent through pneumatic tubes, it's entirely possible that I would. So if you're a rah-rah pro-Trump guy, this is a way to punish Jim Comey. And if you are a rah-rah anti-Trump guy, this is a way to reward me. <laughs> and also to punish Jim Comey, depending on which version of Jim Comey. That's right. And, and, or to punish Jim Comey. It's as, as, as I think they say in um, uh, Married with Children, it is good to punish James Comey. No, that's, that's where they say it is good to hate the French. It's a different thing. Anyway, um, and so anyway, I went uh, I went up to New York on Sunday. I had uh, I went to a little thing at a friend of mine's house. Actually, I can say it, Cliff Asnes' house. He's endowed a chair here for me at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a friend of mine. And um, we did a little sort of cigars and scotch thing there, but it didn't get out of hand. And I brought Steve Hayes with me, and uh, it was a good time. And then last night we did this thing at the Union League Club, co-hosted by NRI and AI. And then we had a nice dinner afterwards. And then I met up with uh, Steve again and uh, another friend of mine. And we had um, cigars again at the this place, the Havana Room, which is a real Masters of the Universe place. It's awesome. It's on top of 666 Fifth Avenue, which is ironically both owned by Jared Kushner and where you would expect Wolfram and Hart, uh, the satanic law firm from the Angel TV series, to be headquartered. And uh, and we were out a little late, 
uh, I knew my decision tree had gone awry when I was with Steve Hayes at a McDonald's at one in the morning on Sixth Avenue. And um, I bet Brett Bayer and Steve Hayes did together in college many times. Yeah, but that was college, you know. Um, and I got to say, the scene at the the McDonald's across the street from Fox News on Sixth Avenue at one in the morning uh, makes it feel like the title of Suicide of the West was way too cheery. Um, it is it is a grim, <laughs> grim place. And uh, so anyway, I was outrageously overserved. I'm tired, I'm angry, and I probably are going to have some malapropisms today, um, but so be it. But I am also, on the other hand, truly brimming with gratitude. I'm going to – so I have this plan. Like, Jack, you read the David Brooks review of or a column on my book, right? Yes, I did. And I thought the nice things he said were wonderful. I thought his actual criticism of my book was strange – um, he basically suggests that I think we should all be sort of radical libertarian Lockeans, and that is the answer to our problems. And I don't think I make that argument in the book. No, I helped you write it. I don't think that sentence appears in the book. Yeah, and um, and this idea that I mean, I've been talking about Edmund Burke for you know, I mean, there's not a huge amount of Burke in the book, but there's a lot of Burkeanism. In the book, and I thought it was strange, but I, one, I'm so grateful to David for the the kind words in it and the attention it brought. And so, my sort of the strategy I've sort of fallen into is I'm waiting for all the David Brooks fans to buy the book, and then when we get closer to pub date, I will respond to David's criticism of the book, um, so I can get all the David Brooks haters to buy the book. And it's a it's it's sort of a one two kind of plan. Uh, there's been some other reviews. Yuval Levin has reviewed the book for National Review. That will be out in a couple – in 10 days or something like that. Yuval has told me that he likes the book, but I don't know much more about it than that. And uh, he's told me he likes it a lot, which is great. And uh, uh, Washington Monthly, I still haven't read that, but apparently had a pretty silly review. And Daniel McCarthy at American Conservative – had a very interesting review where he basically he really wanted to want an excuse to write about James Burnham and and because James Burnham wrote a book called Suicide of the West um he tied it in with mine and that's understandable I knew I was inviting that from people but this is a peeve that is starting to well up inside of me like a primal yawp I keep hearing from people how outrageous it was that I plagiarized or stole James Burnham's title and I didn't steal it it was something that we put some thought into the original working title of the book was The Tribe of Liberty and there was also a time when it was just working title was just wealth it was supposed to be a I was thinking it was going to be a response to Piketty's capital but we settled on uh, Suicide of West for a bunch of reasons one as a sort of slight homage to to Burnham whose arguments more in managerial revolution than Suicide of the West were an influence to me but there are lots of books that have come out that share the same title. Um, I think there are like five books called Friends in High Places, right? There are books called High Crimes and Misdemeanors that come out. And there are a zillion movies that share the same title. And no one ever says, you know, how outrageous that is. I Actually, if you go to IMDb, you can print out this list of unrelated works with the same titles. And it printed out 23 pages. Um, of different movies that all have the same different titles. And, you know, there was Glory, the story about the 
uh, Af- the all-black volunteer regiment in the Civil War. And then there was Glory, which was a movie about a Kentucky horse farm. Um, and you can go down and list. There was a movie, I always liked the movie Gladiator, but my cable system, the, the Russell Crowe one, but my cable system all the time would get it confused with the Cuba Gooding one, which I actually kind of like too. It's a boxing movie. But like when you're ready to watch the Roman Gladiators and then you get Cuba Gooding, it's a little fighting Brian Dennehy in a bodysuit. It's got a little weird. Um, so anyway, the point's taken. I think the Daniel McCarthy piece is interesting. I don't necessarily think it's all that devastating to me, but it was funny because he accuses me of being way too optimistic and sunny about the state of our civilization, despite the title of the book. And then in, like 10 minutes later, uh, I see Dalibor, a colleague of ours at the American Enterprise Institute, wrote a piece for the American Interest, arguing that I'm way too pessimistic about stuff. So maybe I got it just right. And if you're sitting there saying, why is he talking so much about his book? It's because I want to sell the damn book. <laughs> and because I invested a huge chunk of my life in this thing for several years, and I think it's important. And one of the reasons I started this podcast in the first place was um, to sort of, because I knew I wasn't going to get a lot of airtime on places like Fox to talk about this book, um, but I needed some other sort of non-traditional channels to do it. And so if you like getting this podcast for free, think of it this way, is that, you know, the real price for this podcast is that you get to buy um, get to buy this book for which I will be eternally grateful. So anyway, this week we have a friend of the podcast, a newfound friend of mine over the last few months on his repeat performance. It's Scott Lincecum. He's uh, was on our trade show a few months ago and he's back again. We originally wanted to book him. He's a adjunct fellow, a resident fellow, something. He's one of those fellows from Cato. Um, he's also a trade lawyer guy and, um, and he teaches at what at Duke? I hope it's Duke. Yeah. Because if if it's another North Carolina school, then all of the other uh, every, well, basically everyone will be mad at us. Yeah, that's probably we right. Screw that up. So I hope it's Duke. I think it's Duke. And uh, and so about ten days ago, Jack was like, you know, we should really do a trade show because we're going to have a trade war. Maybe we should have Linscombe back. It's like, oh, good idea. So we booked him, and then now tensions have have eased a little bit. But uh, anyway, uh, looking forward to talking to him. And uh, I'll see you at the other end of the interview. Where the hell do you think you're going? You get over there and you kick his ass. No. No? You don't say no to me, boy. No. I'm not fighting for you no more. All right, so this is actually a, a small bit of remnant history being made here. I believe that our, our next guest is the only the second person to, a, to do a repeat appearance on this podcast other than Senator Ben Sass. Wow. Oh, and Charles Murray. So you're still in... I'm in... It's pretty good company. You're in pretty good company. So we've got Scott Lincecum, who's back. Uh, I'm sorry? Well, that guy... Shut up. <laughs> really ruining it, man. I, I felt so special. Yeah. Um, so anyway... Uh, uh, we have Scott Linscom here, who's our uh, our official trade guy. You are now. You can put that on your CV. Cannot wait. Remnant trade guy, and uh, we decided we asked you to do this about I don't know a week two two weeks ago because it looked like the trade wars begun they had, and it now seems like it's little pulled back. Right. And we also because that and I, so we're going to get to that. But the the thing I really want to do is. 
one of the things I, I'm generally liking this podcasting thing more than I expected. But one of the worst things about it is it multiplies opportunities for I should have said this, I could have said that, or as the French say, ribbit. No, as the French say, l'esprit d'escalier, right? So we had our trade guy on the last time, you, and we didn't once actually just ask the basic question, why aren't trade deficits bad? Right, right. So let's assume, not in your class... Let's not assume, and not in a seminar, let's assume that you're talking to some guy at the Cracker Barrel. Sure. And you want to explain to him or her, or zer, or whatever, why trade deficits aren't the problem that Donald Trump thinks that they are. Sure. So the, the first thing is to understand, well, what is a trade deficit? A trade deficit really, most simply, is just where you are importing more stuff, goods and services, than you are exporting. That's it. Now, the difference between what you import and what you export is your trade balance. Uh, if you import more than you export, you have a deficit. You export more, you have a surplus. That's it. So one of the reasons why uh, we don't – we, being trade folks, don't generally consider trade balances, trade deficits to be per se horrible is to understand that it really at the end of the day is just an accounting thing. It is just about exports minus imports generally. Um, but more than that, uh, it's critical to understand that every dollar represented by that trade deficit. So, well, you know, United States, Trump likes to talk about how we have this trade deficit with China. He says it's $500 billion. It's actually $350 billion, but who's counting? He says, and that we're losing this money. Well, no, every dollar of that trade deficit actually represents something that an American consumer has voluntarily decided to purchase, right. uh, an import. In the case, if you're talking with China – from China, or at least some part of it made in China. I have a massive trade deficit with my barber. Right, right. right. And so that that is the fundamental misunderstanding, that this deficit is really just a voluntary purchase by someone to another, uh, another individual somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And where we purchase more uh, than they purchase from us, then you have a deficit, right? So in our everyday lives, we all have tons of trade deficits. You have one with your barber. I have one with my grocery store, so forth and so on. We don't really care. I don't want to talk about my liquor store, but it happens there too. Yeah, these days uh, especially. Uh, so, of course, you know, that – that goes – that kind of basic logic that we all understand goes out the window when you start attaching terms like deficit to it. Um, now, it's even more problematic when you do it on a bilateral level. So so at, an, at least at a national level, if you talk about the United States has an overall trade deficit, OK, there's maybe some economic – truth to that being uh, a potential signal of a problem in and of itself, not going to be a problem, could signal a problem. You have a savings and investment issue because mm -hmm. trade balances are actually driven not by trade policy, believe it or not. It's a very hard thing to understand. They're actually driven by macroeconomic factors. We in the United States consume more than we save. We're going to run a trade deficit. That's just how it works. And in fact, the big tax cut that we just so, had, uh, I mean, yeah. I, I understand what you're saying, but I think it, this is an important point that yeah. maybe I can get you to explain it a little more. Sure. Um, what if we had huge protectionist trade barriers? Yeah. But we consumed more than we say. We would still have trade deficits? Uh, unless we completely shut off the market? Mm. Yeah. That's just – that is that is an iron law of economics that if you have a relative – consumption 
or investment, we call it, more than your savings. And that's relative to every other country in the world because that's a relative issue about then you're going to have a trade deficit. That's just how it works. Mm -hmm. And trade policy can play at the margins. And of course, yeah, if you have complete autarky, but then you have other major issues. Um, But it's, you know, a tariff here, a tariff there, it's not going to change anything. Um, I like to think of it like, you know, pushing on a balloon. You could maybe push in one little point, but then it's going to push out in other places. That's just how it works. So at the national level, you could say, oh, well, we have a, a consumption problem. We are not uh, saving enough. Uh, our government is not is way in debt, uh, which is very true, um, and that is driving our trade deficit. Our trade deficit is a symptom of that. That's a problem. Mm. But again, the trade deficit in and of itself is not a problem. Now, there's another macroeconomic issue that is that because the United States is such an attractive investment destination, because the U.S. dollar is so uh, coveted as a reserve currency, you, we have a ton of money coming in from from abroad. And that also drives trade balances because the flip side of every trade balance, every trade deficit will be a capital surplus. So you have money coming in. So foreigners are going to either be investing in private businesses, buying government debt and so forth. So that's the other thing that's going to drive uh, our, our trade balance. So that's the other thing you have to try to step back and understand is that a trade deficit is always matched dollar for dollar um, well, very, very close to with, by a uh, investment surplus. So when you hear President Trump uh, applaud uh, Japanese automakers for investing in the United States and then in the very same breath um, uh, rail against the trade deficit um, and then in the next breath rail uh, or praise the tax cuts that expanded the, the government debt. Um, there's just a, a insane incoherence. I mean, this is why I start ranting on Twitter and, yeah. and my liquor store bill is also high. So that's your national kind of your, your, your trade deficit overall. But your bilateral trade deficits, that's where it really becomes completely meaningless. Mm-hmm. And, and that's for a lot of reasons. I mean, most notably, it's that we don't live in a world with just two countries. So you could, uh, give, your dollars to China. China could then spend those dollars in Germany and, you know, it just all kind of, and so we could have surpluses with other countries. It really, you know, it's again, it goes back to what you do with your grocery store, how that grocery store uses your dollars that could eventually come back to you. Um, and so you could, um, it really tells you nothing about your, your trading activities at all when you look at your bilateral balances. The other problem though, is that these days, so much of what we consume, our goods are, are made in a bunch of places that are through global supply chains. You know, you look on the back of your iPhone, it says designed in California, assembled in China, blah, blah, blah. Well, that, that when it comes in, and that iPhone has actually has value add from all over the world. Right. And studies have shown that maybe 10 bucks of your iPhone that's imported from China into the United States actually is value derived in China. So China, the Chinese producers, they only get about 10 bucks. The other 150 bucks of that cost, whatever it is, go to manufacturers in Japan, in Taiwan, in the United States. Mm-hmm. But it all, when it crosses the border into the United States as an iPhone, all comes in as one import from China worth the total cost put together. So a bunch of eggheads have gotten together and they've looked at, at what we call trade in value add. And especially with countries like China and Mexico, you actually see the United States trade deficit shrink dramatically 
by like 30 or 40 percent even um, because of this trade in value add. And so it's another reason why obsessing over the, the nominal dollar value of a trade balance bet- with, between two countries really just doesn't make any sense. Right. So is, I can get off this and we'll talk about what's going on in the real world in sure. just a second. But I tried to explain this point about trade deficits being the flip side of investment surplus yeah. to my daughter. I failed yeah. miserably. Is there an analogy in that is not about the country? A, a, could you explain it in terms of like a grocery store or a family budget? Or some, is there some other metaphorical way of explaining it? Yeah, I mean, actually, I think that you can still use nations because. So I think it's Don Boudreaux, or the the way that I've heard it most easily explained is that every dollar we spend on stuff that goes abroad cannot be spent anywhere but the United States, with very, very few exceptions. So that dollar that you send abroad for some widget from China is going to eventually get back Boomerang to back. the United States. It has to. Because it's an American dollar. because right, it's an American dollar. Right. So, you know, the guy in China that gets that dollar could then go exchange it for yen, but that dollar still exists, and right. it is still going to make its way eventually. It might tra- pass through 10 different countries, but it's going to make its way back to the United States. Yeah, yeah. And so because of that, well, that dollar can, can only be spent in a few ways. It can buy our exports. Okay. That's the easiest. Right. It can uh, buy government debt right. or it can get invested in private uh, private businesses or you know, in real estate and right. so forth. That's it. And all of those options ex the without – except for exports are yeah, that's our helpful. investment. That's, that, that's legitimately helpful because it's like I go to England. I come back with pounds mm-hmm. and I'm like what am I going to do with these things? And I, I have a special spot in a drawer. And I know because someday I'm going back to England exactly. and I'll take them with me. Exactly. Right? And right. so, you know, if you want to get it on the on the, on the the personal level, you know, think about it where you have Schrute bucks, mm-hmm. right? Right, right, Schrute right, bucks can only be spent with good old Dwight Schrute. Right. And so it really is the exact same or those, thing. Or the little coins you get at Dave & Buster's. Yeah. Right. That's a perfect yeah, example, yeah. right? And a good one for my daughter, by the way. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, okay. So that's helpful. And then – before we get to uh, what's going on in the world, the other thing that I didn't bring up on the last episode, which is a bit of a uh, hard right turn here, is you have a very pronounced and passionate position on nachos. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I won't prejudge. I won't – no spoilers. What is your official position on nachos? Well, really that there's a, a very specific definition of nacho uh-huh. and that is uh, the, what, what some – pejoratively, in my view, called the Texas nacho. Uh That is where you have individual chips that have been individually dressed with your beans, your cheese, your your meat. I prefer uh, fajita beef, personally. Uh Uh Uh, And then, you know, you will have a side of of the trinity of pico de gallo, sour cream, and guacamole. Uh Okay, that's a nacho. Uh What is not a nacho, and what I really take offense to, uh, is these giant bowls of chips that have been smothered in some sort of chili concoction and maybe with a bunch of cheese thrown on top, shoved in an oven, and then brought to you in a steaming pile of sloppy goop. Because uh-huh. really at the bottom of that bowl, you, you end up with – it's just it's yeah. just 
disgusting. And and then you know half the chips don't have any cheese on them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And and then of course then you see these abominations of people making nachos that have uh, all sorts of you know like Asian nachos. Come on, that is not it's just not a nacho. So I'm a bit of a purist, uh-huh, I'll admit. Uh-huh. But it's because you know I was born and raised in Texas. I know what real Mexican food is. I know what a real nacho is. Uh-huh. And in fact, if you look back at the original nacho by a man uh, whose uh, nickname was Nacho. Uh-huh. Um, you actually see that that is correct. The original nachos were a simple plate of chips with some some cheese and a couple of pickled jalapeno slices. And, and you know, so uh, and this know, was invented in Texas, or is it? From uh, it was actually right across the border in Mexico. He was serving uh-huh. some troops. I, I researched this. Uh-huh. I was, I, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a bit of an originalist. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I want to make sure I I understand the the. Uh, Just so so we can we can get your orthodoxy in the right perspective. Do you think it's fighting words to say that chili has beans in it? Uh, no, I actually don't mind chili with beans. Okay, because there are a lot of Texans. Yeah, who get very upset about this. Yeah, no. So I, I, you know, I'm not. I, you know, I have my limits. I'll put uh-huh. it that way. But I do. I think the the critical point is more of a. Uh, first of all, what is what did a nacho originate as? Uh-huh. Where, where did it come from? It came from my 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 region, my where uh-huh. I'm from. Uh, but also, just a, from a pure utility perspective, why would you want to call a big giant uh, chip mountain? Yeah. Um, uh, or, you know, all, any of those other sort of fusion things, why would you want to ruin the name of a good nacho? I mean, nachos are a wonderful food. I mean, really, in the pantheon. No, they're great. I agree. I agree. I agree. I, I, I get I'm – not, I'm not the purist you are. This. I, I have no problem with you asserting that in the hierarchy of things, this way of doing nachos yeah. is better than these other right. ways of doing nachos. But in an era where people can put barbecue chicken – on a pizza, right? But isn't that the isn't that the point? I mean, shouldn't someone stand athwart food and yell stop? Shouldn't we really say this is not normal? It is not, and we are getting to the point where these these crossovers are are destroying what what was once a pure institution. And I think it really devalues what what is so wonderful about about the the food. You do realize that you're making a cultural appropriation argument, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and well, well, and there's there's also there's a lot of of cultural strains throughout these Yeah, these, no that's right. But I mean, <laughs> my my I, I I don't. I don't mind the TGI Fridays Nacho Tower because I'm only going to have a few of them and I'll get them from the top and then yeah, we'll other see. people yeah, can okay. eat the rest. My um my objection is to that um liquid paste that is like Muppet bile yeah. that you see at movie theaters now and and sports arenas, right. you know, where they just ladle it on and it reminds me like when I was in college, I was running the paper and I found the bag that they put. That, that the the cheese product, right? Sure, the, sure. The salad bar came in, and and everyone thought it was like you know utility grade cheddar or something like that. And I look at the label, and it says in the bottom, "This product contains no dairy." Yeah. <laughs> and I put it in the. It was my big expose. There you go. I'm in the paper, but um. All right, so I wanted to get out of the way. Yeah. Before we talk about the uh the the war of all against. Oh, that's this is the other trade point I want to make. Isn't part. I mean, I, I always feel like I'm going to burst into flames when I say anything positive about Paul Krugman. Yeah. But 1990s Paul Krugman was pretty great. Yeah. And he's the guy who made – and I, I I, I always feel honor bound to invoke him because he's the guy I learned to think about this this way about right. was that nations really don't compete with yeah. each other. Right? Yeah. That's the other really huge thing. When you talk about trade policy and, and particularly at the political level – 
you never you it, trade is always discussed as some sort of competition between nations, right? And not what it actually is, which is voluntary transactions among individuals, right? So and competition between firms, some sure, but that's and different. and governments can and and I think that governments can compete in terms of creating investment environments, having optimal policies, but in terms of the actual trade of goods and services, it just isn't happening. With of course some. Ex- exceptions for military and some state-owned companies. Right. But for the most part, our trade is not between countries. It is between individuals. And it really is a critical point because when you when you hear, particularly on the protectionist side, they talk about dumping, you know, China is dumping products as if the Chinese government, uh, you know, uh, gets, uh, has a catapult of sorts and launches HGT- HDTVs at uh, poor, innocent Americans who have no um, ability to, to prevent this type of behavior, right? And, and, you know, certainly, you know, China can be, I think, either rightly or wrongly, uh, targeted because of state intervention. But, I mean, get away from the state economies and you still hear this stuff, sure. right? You still hear this idea that that poor, innocent consumers are being victimized by HDTVs falling from the sky. Now, look, I would love... Well, you look at what Trump said about the deficit. Remember that whole thing about Trump talking to the pretty boy from Canada and saying, yeah, um, you know, we have a trade deficit with you and Trudeau says, no, we don't, no, you don't. And, and so to defend himself, Trump says... It's uh, we do in things like timber, right? Right, and they makes it sound, and then the argument that all of a sudden sprouts up in the usual corners is Canada is dumping their wood right. you know, on America, and so and so again, you get to this idea that that somehow the Canadian government or any other government is is secretly um, invading the United States with their with their with their darn products, right. you know, and which is just absurd. You know, it, it really – and the other thing, of course, is that it's all so attenuated. You know, you and I, I'm not for the most part purchasing direct from any producer ever. Right, right. And so, you know, it – all of that is lost. All of the jobs that it takes to actually get a TV from, uh, say, you know, Korea to the United States, all of that is lost. It is somehow just the Korean government uh, – uh, launching Samsungs at me, which I would enjoy. I, so what is? I mean, I think we probably got into this in the last yeah. time. But what what is your response to the argument that that when they dump these products, yeah, okay, great, so we get steel cheaper, yep. and that's good for these other industries and all the rest. But it's destroying our steel industry or our TV industry, right? And the, there's this whole, and this gets back to this thing about competitiveness, this notion that you know, I had Ben Sasson here last week, and he's talking about there are these industries that are going to be these key industries of the future. And we have a national interest in not letting China get ahead of it. Well, if you leave it all to the market, isn't it possible – and this is, again, my devil's advocate question yeah. here – isn't it possible that these industries are going to be atrophied or, or, or fall behind and not be competitive with ones overseas? And that was a huge argument when I first came to watch about HDTVs. Oh, the wave of the future. We can't let the Japanese beat us on this. Everyone's right. going to want one, right? But – isn't there some or is there some truth to the idea that if if you let these other countries subsidize their products and quote unquote dump them on our market, yeah. you make it impossible to make a profit manufacturing these things here at home? Yeah. So so it's 
there is a a nugget of truth to the idea that uh, particularly on the subsidy side, you know, I actually wrote a long paper about how I think that we that global subsidy rules that we have in place are useful. Mm-hmm. However, and this is the the really big however, is that it it really warrants a lot of skepticism, uh, and and a lot and we don't have any of that skepticism. Um, I mean, because really, what you're talking about. Uh, and I'm I'm a little surprised to hear Sass say this, given his conservative uh, views. He wasn't but, he wasn't jumping in with both feet. Yeah, he was raising these concerns. Right. He had just got back from China. He was got pretty it. bleary eyed, and he was like, "Some of this stuff is really interesting. And we don't appreciate how big their Silicon Valley is." Right. So all that stuff. so I, I so first you have to um, believe that the federal government. Uh, has the ability to pick the industries of the future right? and then has the ability to pull the policy levers needed to guide those industries right. of the future. Okay. And we know from a fact and from decades of kind of uh, history of strategic trade policy and stuff that, that governments aren't very good at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's your first problem. The second problem is that uh, the definitions of dumping and subsidization are – well, by definition, political. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those definitions are crafted not by consumers and not by egg-headed wonks like me. They are crafted by politicians and politicians who are most influenced by domestic industry seeking pr- protection right. from competition. Right. So what you end up with is dumping rules that have nothing to do with dumping uh, and subsidy rules that while – in theory could be could work well in practice have been horribly abused finding subsidies where none exist and so forth and so on so and then third there is this this idea that of predatory behavior well in a very liquid capital market like we have here in the United States predatory pricing and all of that type of stuff really can't exist it doesn't exist there are very very few instances of predatory behavior because uh, if a company does – a foreign company does successfully knock out an American industry and then it proceeds to jack up its prices, well, that creates a tremendous opportunity for a new market entrant to, of course, right. destroy or, or, or uh, uh, push back against that. And so – and that happens quite a bit. And so, uh, you know, it requires a bit of a longer-term view of the market and the behavior, um, but you you just don't see it see it happening very much. Yeah, I mean, th- this was the key to Schumpeter's stuff, right? He says, you know, um, which I found kind of amazing, but Tim McGraw, or I keep saying Tim McGraw, it's Scott McGraw? Tom McGraw, um, who wrote the biography of Schumpeter, he, he makes the point that it was really Schumpeter who introduces the idea of looking at dynamics over time. You know, it's like a snapshot of the Titanic mm-hmm. as it leaves port. Tells you a lot about the Titanic, but it doesn't really tell you the right. whole story, right? And I love I love the examples when you look at um, the stock exchange. You know, who was on the Dow in 1930 versus right. who's on the Dow now? And it really is. It's, it's Schumpeter come to life, right? Yeah. And, and do we really think – I mean particularly on this side of the aisle, do we really trust a bunch of, of bureaucrats or politicians to be able to say that's the industry we need to protect or that's the industry we need to subsidize? Right. I think generally that's we we should be very skeptical of yeah, that type. No, I think that's right. And I, I did a I did a video for AI, which Jack can put up on the show notes of uh, the um, Blade Runner curse. You know, there are all these movie companies that it's product placements in the yeah, original Blade Runner, right. and um, 
by the time we reached the year that Blade Runner was supposed to take effect, like half of them were gone, right. and everyone's like, "Oh, it's a curse." No, it's actually that's about normal. Yeah. Like for for Fortune 500 yeah. companies to either be swallowed up by bigger companies or to go out of business, you know, and 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 that's why Schumpeter argued that you really can't have a monopoly for a long period of time unless the government protects it. Exactly. Which is also Adam Smith's point. Right. right. And, and and I think the the last point is that this is not some sort of unilateral disarmament. This doesn't mean that you can't look over into China and say, wow, they have some industrial policies that are a real problem. It just requires a a, a smart solution, one that might take a little longer, mm-hmm. um, but won't uh, backfire uh, by either enlarging government, harming consumers or downstream industries or starting wars. Right. Um, and so, you know, we have a pretty decent process in place, uh, at least knock on wood, it's still in place at the WTO, World Trade Organization, that it, it, it creates – we have a, this kind of global set of rules. Governments go there. They fight it out. And believe it or not, they comply. They tend to with these decisions. Now, does this take too long? Yes. And do countries always comply? No. And are the rules perfect? No. But, you know, it's pretty cool that you can have the United States bring a case against China, as we've done several times, win that case, as we typically do, and the Chinese government to voluntarily say, you got us. We're going to eliminate that subsidy. We're going to eliminate this uh, intellectual property. In part because they need WTO more than we do. Exactly. Right? And because they're desperate for it to, to be viewed globally as a legitimate participant in the global right. economy. So they they have uh, these additional pressures that don't exist when you just start guns a-blazing going after them. Um, and, of course, when you go guns a-blazing, you create countervailing political pressures that they ha- they can't appear weak and they can't do right. this. So it, they're really it's, – it's not that there aren't – you should just ignore these things. But you, there are smart and dumb ways to, to go about it. Have you ever argued at the WTO? Uh, well, I've, I've done some uh, representation, yeah. And so, like, where is it? So it's in Geneva. Uh-huh. It's a beautiful little place uh, on the lake. It is. It's funny, you know. Even though it's right next door, technically to the UN, it's it's like the exact opposite type of organization. It's very small. It's got a very tiny budget. The people who who work at the WTO are all extremely accomplished. Um, you know, there there are a lot of uh, former U.S. Uh, either judges or ITC commissioners, stuff that, that have gone to be uh, – or to go work at the appellate body. Um, I mean it's really a bunch of very well-respected technicians. They don't have like cool uniforms or – No, no. It's just all like – imperial it's, court it's on It's just basically uh, global trade nerds. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't know. Hoff is the it's wrong like the imperial the senate. That's yeah, that's basically, what I'm thinking. There's a giant uh, – yeah, I wish. That would be pretty sweet. But so um, – and, you know, believe it or not, the, the WTO, which was, let's, let's remind everybody, a U.S. invention back right. in the 1940s to, to try to prevent a, a third world war, was, was this, is this kind of small little organization that operates purely on voluntary terms. There are no little armies with blue helmets. There is no sort of – the only damage that can happen is you lose some of the benefits of the agreement if you're a country and you don't comply. And yet everybody generally wants to comply with these rulings and with these rules because they see the immense benefit right. that they derive and that the globe that the world derives from from participating in in the system. Okay. So, are we going to have a trade war? <laughs> I was promised a trade war. Yeah. Cuz they're easy they're 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 easy to win. I was right. Told. Well, yeah, they're good. And they're and good and, good and, and easy, easy to, to win. win. Yeah. <sighs> so, uh, the easy the easy answer is we don't know yet. 
Uh-huh. Um, so to just to recap everybody at home, starting in, in about February of this year, the United States really started going um, a lot more forcefully towards unilateralism. Uh, the initial move was this Section 232 action on steel and aluminum, steel and aluminum tariffs. That has engendered a little bit of pushback. The Chinese have retaliated a little bit. There are, has been um, at least one WTO dispute as well filed, which will take years to litigate. But that's the only actual tariffs that have been imposed so far. Now, they're bad generally, and I wish they would go away. And they certainly are causing problems for downstream industries. Uh, and steel and aluminum prices have are up 30-something percent this year, and you know it's bad. But in terms of a, a war analogy, no, it's a skirmish right now. Now, the, the problem is that we now have another uh, case, a Section 301 case on Chinese intellectual property, that the United States has threatened uh, 50 billion uh, uh, tariffs on 50 billion more in Chinese imports. Then the Chinese retaliated with tariffs on 50 billion or uh, proposed tariffs mm-hmm. on 50 billion in U.S. exports. Now the United States has come back and they're about to propose another tariff list uh, on another hundred billion dollars in China Chinese exports or Chinese imports here mm-hmm. into the United States. The United States is also considering investment restrictions on Chinese investment. Treasury is going to come out with a report on that in a month or so. Uh, they filed a WTO dispute. Um, so things are ratcheting up. Now, but most of this is still like putting guns on the table in a threatening manner, but right. not actually pointing. Exactly. Well, it's funny. They're actually pointing them at American consumers. Right. right, right. <laughs> but, but the – no. So, so far, the shots in the 301 action have not been fired yet. Mm. And, you know, guys like Larry Kudlow get on TV and they say it's just negotiating. It's just negotiating. But it is – it's going to be difficult to for the United States and for China to extricate themselves from this. Now, the Chinese have made a few in, initial concessions. These are concessions that I think are good, opening up their economy to investment and stuff. But uh, it'd be it'd be surprising if it satisfied the Trump administration because they're not really on point for what the the Section three hundred one case is about. Section one three hundred one case is about intellectual property rights. Chinese today offered access to their aircraft uh, investment in their aircraft sector and, right. and cars. Um, it's a little different. And, and I would be remiss not to note, of course, that it is kind of hilarious that our populist, our na- populist nationalist president has won uh, concessions from the Chinese government that may, will make it easier for American manufacturers to outsource production to China. But I, I can't. Had to, yeah, had to add that, fair. but but so who knows what's going to happen? I I you know once you get out of kind of the basic nuts and bolts of tariffs and the law and stuff, and you start getting into geopolitical diplomacy, yeah, you know who knows? Yeah, but right now it 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 doesn't look promising. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know anything anything can happen. So long story short, we are not in a trade war yet. A few bullets have been fired on steel and aluminum, um, and we're kind of waiting to see what happens in the bigger skirmishes. And so, how many more? Look, full disclosure: I've known Larry Kudlow for twenty years. Uh, when I started National Review Online, he would dictate his column to me, and I'd be like, "Don't, don't you mean the sainted Calvin Coolidge?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's how, yeah, you do that, yeah." <laughs> and so, like, and he's a sweet guy, yep. and in his heart, we know he's a free trader, right? Right. How many times can he go on CNBC 
and reassure markets yeah. after these things. I mean, you don't. Isn't that one of these things that you can only kind of do once? Uh, once or twice. So, yeah. so you know, um, according to the Wall Street Journal last week, uh, they said this this new list, this new tariff list, is going to come out this week. That's another hundred billion dollars. We saw what markets did the first time. Right. So, and that was only fifty billion in imports. So, it'll be interesting to see. But it is a proposal. So, you know, a calm, sober, rational person. So, not a Wall Street trader. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll say okay, we're still just talking, but it's really hard to say what the markets are going to do. It's very hard to say what China will do, mm-hmm. um, and then you know all bets are off from there. Um, you know, I would really prefer at the end of the day that this all go away. Um, you know, I have no problem uh, eating a little bit of crow and saying, wow, Trump's threats actually worked, and yeah, yeah. Uh, the Chinese opened up their market to investment. Great. Um, it doesn't look like that's how, how that's going to go, but but we'll see. And we, we talked about this on the phone a couple of weeks ago, but um, I think the one of the, one of the problems I have with the way that this is all being talked about is that all of the Trump proposes real tariffs. He keeps asking his people, "Bring me tariffs, right. bigger tariffs. I want tariffs," you know. And they come back with, and that's that was. I mean, Paul Ryan resigned last week or announced his retirement last week. That was sort of what the whole plan with the border adjustment tax was, was to give Trump something that sounded tariffy, that was more intellectually defensible. Yeah. I didn't like the border adjustment tax, mm-hmm. but it was better than tariffs, yeah, right? Right, right? And and he didn't like it. He thought it was too complicated. He wanted tariffs. He likes tariffs. He wants a wall. He wants tariffs. Don't you – but it's, my problem is, is that Larry will go on and – They'll ask him about tariffs, and he'll switch immediately to this intellectual property thing, yeah. right? Which I think is a much more real yeah. thing, right? And 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 prosecutable under the WTO, right? right? But a point you made to me was that you know one of the problems with the intellectual property part of this is that big corporations are a huge part of the American corporations are a big part of the problem, right? Because yeah. they're they're agreeing to this, yeah. Well, that's right. And so, you know, the what is 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 unmentioned is that uh, not all, but some of these Chinese policies, whether we like them or not, generally not. Right. Well, um, let's explain what it is. Wait, wait. So it's, American company goes there. They say you have to partner with a Chinese company and you have to give us access to your your your, your technology, your, your technology. IP, your right. intellectual property. And so a company that wants access to the Chinese market. Decides, okay, it's worth it. I'm going to, I'm going to invest. I'm going to partner with a Chinese company, and I'm going to give them my my IP, my intellectual property, because it's worth it. But that, what we just described, is for the most part a voluntary choice. Mm-hmm. It is a, des- a desire that the market access is worth uh, the tech transfer, technology transfer. Right. Now, that's not the case in in all instances. You know, in some cases, uh, companies have a JV, a joint venture, and then all of a sudden, they're already, they're already invested, and then they're being forced right. to give over t- their technology. In other cases, there are allegations of state-sponsored hacking. Okay, we're not talking about that. The most basic uh, issue is this, you know, as a condition for investment or as a condition for importing, you are required to give over your intellectual property. Now, that again, that still gives companies a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, or 
uh, should say now they're complaining about the choices that have been made. Right. So, I mean, that's my problem is this, it's you agree to the extortion and then you scream about the Chinese extorting right. us. Right. And and I get complaining about it, but it seems to me that there, by the time it gets back to the United States and part of the American debate, it is just all oh, these companies are being victimized. Right. When really what they're doing is they're being complicit. Yeah. Right. There, there is certainly an aspect, uh, and 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 again, this leaves aside whether what what the Chinese are are alleged of doing is is legitimate under the WTO rules, whether it's it's uh, considered fair. I hate that word, but fair trade, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, they left unmentioned in most of this is that is that companies years ago decided that China's market was just too darn lucrative um, and for them to stay out despite the legal issues and the intellectual property issues. And now my my colleagues at Cato who, who, who don't like investor state dispute settlement, they would say that this is that the market the, the, there is a market mechanism to deal with this, and the market mechanism is not to invest, mm-hmm. there, right? That that they had that by choosing to uh, continue to invest there and to give in, give into these rules, of course, incentivizes those rules, right? Um, and and so that yeah, I mean, you know, there there certainly is an aspect of of being complicit. But you, but you wouldn't be in favor, except for maybe some narrow national security question, of actually the U.S. passing a law saying you can't do that. With China, I would not. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I'm just way too skeptical of it being used for altruistic public interest reasons and not for more, um, you know, anti-competitive reasons. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just have it. Just it, there's just too many darn instances, including the latest national security tariffs we just put on steel and aluminum. There's just too many instances of that being used uh, as really just for anti-competitive purposes. And for the record. The national, the reason why it was a, declared a national security issue to do the terrorism, that was the only way they could do it. Right. Right. And so there actually is no national security issue involved. It would be a pretty – it's a stretch. Yeah. You know, it, it, the idea is simply that if we don't have a steel industry that reaches 80 percent capacity utilization, um, it, we don't – it's a national security threat. Um, and the only way that they can achieve 80 uh, percent uh, utilization is through tariffs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a that's a, a there's a lot of steps there. Yeah, I mean it's sort of like I'm pretty sure this is still the case that you know California had a balanced budget amendment, and I could be getting this wrong, but I think this is right. In like '78, as part of the tax revolt stuff, and but there's a clause in there that says you can you can deficit spend, you can break the budget um, for a crisis. So every year since then, they've been declaring a crisis under the budget rules right. so that they can spend whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that's still the case, but I don't know because it's a strange place over there. All right. So if you had to predict what happens um, in the next – and for all we know, we're going to leave this room and – because this is what happens to all yeah. podcasts that are on the news is you leave the room and all of a sudden – the planet is is governed by intelligent speaking apes. Hold on, so. let me check Twitter to make sure nothing <laughs> crazy has happened before I make a prediction, because I, I at least want to make sure. Okay, I'm good. There's been no no major developments. Uh-huh. No, um, I I think that we'll muddle through some sort of um, uh, less bad 
uh, option that that will allow Trump to declare victory. Uh-huh. But still, I think I think I think some tariffs are are inevitable. Here. Yeah. But I think there will be eventually something worked out that that lets Trump declare victory um, now. And we'll we'll have people like me grousing in the corner about, you know, some victory. Right. But I think the worst will be avoided because it seems that everyone wants to avoid the worst, including the Chinese. Yeah. So it seems like that is that is still possible. Uh, but I mean, let's face it. This is this is um, a crapshoot. Yeah, I mean the the challenge it seems to be the challenge with the Chinese is that the you know, we people don't really remember the, where the phrase kowtow comes from. It's this ancient story where you know you have to bow like seven times, you have to truly prostrate yourself, yeah. and they the Chinese have so much national pride. They're so afraid of their angry young men. They're so torn about fomenting nationalism to you know uh, distract from. Uh, Economic problems to uh, being terrified of nationalism and losing face yeah. in this. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm not a huge fan of China. I think so much of their system is barbaric, but I always have this weird pang of sympathy for them when you hear the Chinese embassy say, "Can you just tell us what you actually want?" Right. You know, and that seems to be. A completely legitimate request. Yeah. You know, you tell us what you want, and then we'll talk about it. And, 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 and they don't. They don't. The Trump administration won't give it to them. Yeah, and that's a great point uh, that I didn't mention earlier, and that is that you know it, you have threats without a list of deliverables. Right. Uh, you, so so it's um, you know there there's a a demand for money and no ransom note. Right. You know, and that is a, a very I mean, how do you extract yourself? Now it's somewhat politically. Uh, smart in the sense that it allows the Trump administration to declare victory at, at really any time. Right. Um, because they did mention all these policies in this big report, but there again, there's been no list of demands. Um, but it does, it, it, it gives the, you know, the other side can't, how do you win? Right. And, and the, the real problem is if you're uh, on the other side of the negotiating table from the United States, how do you know that the deal that you make, which is going to be painful uh is is one that will be kept and right. it will be the end of it how right. do you know um and that's that's a that's a problem yeah i mean and this is a problem that extends far beyond trade is the the ambiguity that the us is giving off on all sorts of fronts is i think dangerous because yeah. the enforcer of the international order needs to project a certain air of certainty <laughs> and um and i get yeah as you'd like to be a disruptor and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but um you don't want countries completely freaking out about what we're going to do next yeah. on a lot of fronts. So last, very last question. You're a lawyer, yep. right, right? But you're a trade lawyer. So like you probably still have most of your soul, right? It's not like, yeah, I'm, I'm a, de- I'm a good, I'm one of the good ones. Yeah. So, but now if say we turn the microphones off and I gave you 10 bucks, mm-hmm. could I tell you anything I wanted? It's <laughs> 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 so it's funny you mentioned this. I was in a conversation with my wife about this point just last night and no, I would not take that money, uh-huh. I, and I would I would say come to my office uh-huh. and sit down, and I'm not I'm not doing any sort of informal legal advice. Uh, it it's it's kind of hilarious, quite frankly, because lawyers are so risk averse, mm-hmm. at least the ones I know, and lawyers are the kings of the caveat. 
you know, particularly as a lawyer, a trade lawyer, people ask me advice on and not on non-trade stuff, and right. I immediately, well, I'm not a criminal lawyer, right. I'm not a, I'm not a real estate lawyer, but and you should talk to a real estate. I mean, immediately. So yeah. the idea that I would just be like, oh, thanks for your money, and here's my, ad- yeah, no, yeah, that's I would never do that. Yeah, damn it, because you know I All have right. I have this like cargo tanker of of of, of uh, unrefined sugar I'm trying to unload on the international First you market. get the sugar. <laughs> um, I actually, there used to be a guy, old story, quick, I used to be a guy here at AEI who worked in the kitchen, really nice guy from uh, Nigeria. And and then a buddy of mine went to go work at ExxonMobil. And I saw this guy up in the cafeteria and I was like, hey, you know, he goes, hey, where's, where's Nick? And I said, oh, you know, Nick went to ExxonMobil. And he immediately says to me, he did I gotta talk to him. I can get him a deal on some jet fuel. <laughs> I was like, this is a, this is a conversation I'm gonna get out of real quickly. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for coming. Um, I figured it out, Jack. Despite your your nitpicking, he's the only the other he's the only other guest who's been here as a solo conversation. Take that, man. On two occasions. Yeah. Other so Sass has been here more than once. Scott's been here more than once. The you're talking about the special get off our lawn advice show with with Hayward and Murray that was different. So anyway, it is a badge of honor. He's going to get the medal. Thank you. Um, Merit badge. And uh, I would prefer a belt or robe. (laughs) It can be arranged. You have to wrestle me to get that. Perfect. Um, And thanks again for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? All right, so uh, uh, Scott Lincecum has left the building. I'm here back with my um, colleague. Uh, my colleague sounds ha! too Freudian generous. Freudian slip. Too That's generous. a victory for me. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're locked in. I'm a uh, colleague. I blame the hung- hangover. Colleague, yes. <laughs> um, best new, best thing you've, nicest thing you've ever said to me. That's possibly true. And um, um, although I'm, I am, if I weren't such a stickler about about intellectual integrity of this podcast, I would make you cut out me saying the Imperial Palace on Hoth, but I don't think I can do that. Um, well, I mean, you can't make me do that either. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I put fart noises in this podcast if I want to. Yeah, I, I would prefer if you didn't do that too much off, more often. I've been meaning to tell you. <laughs> I only did it once. I know, I know, I know. Uh, we, we, we crossed that Rubicon, and um, you know, I think it cost us an Emmy <laughs> or whatever they give out for podcasts. I have no idea. Um so anyway, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was worthwhile to have. I'm glad we got to clarify the nacho situation and clarify why trade, de- trade deficits um, aren't the big deal that people think they are because it was killing me that I hadn't asked him about that um, the first time he was in here. Um, but I did mean to ask him about his last name because you look at it and you want you assume it's a pretty Italian name, Linsicomi. Instead, he has this very sort of anglicized pronunciation of it. Probably smoothed out at um, Ellis Island or wherever his ancestors came in. Well, you know, my understanding is that the Ellis Island name change story, which was a big part of Goldberg lore when I was growing up, is not in fact true. That names were not – people immigrants were not forced to change their name. The Godfather Part Two lied to me? Apparently. Um, although they, 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 did they force him to change? I guess they yeah, kind of Yeah, because he comes yeah. in as a kid and he says he's uh, – Anthony Antolini from right. from uh, Corleone, Italy, is just right. 
Anthony Corleone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they didn't. But they didn't force him to. They just. I mean, it wasn't like your name is too foreign. Let's give you another foreign name, right? Yeah, it's yeah. just he didn't know enough English to object. And right. It was also like a uh, measles-infected ten-year-old walking into Ellis Island by himself. You know, but let's like my ancestors who came to the United States and the uh, on my dad's side, my mom's side goes back to like the friggin' at least my mom's mom's side goes back to pre-revolutionary times i mean i love all of these alt-right guys you know telling me about how my people have stolen their country and i got a i got a family tree at home that was needle pointed that starts in like 1723 in virginia yeah meanwhile some of the alt-right twitter guys have like polish last names exactly like you know your patron your patrimony in america is not really that old i I particularly like it when some of them do the 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 23andMe or the Ancestry.com stuff or whatever those those home genetic tests, they find out they're Jewish. <laughs> Love that stuff. But, uh, you know, it's not like my ancestor. My my original family name was Stavoskovsky. And uh, I don't think that we all originally hailed from Goldberg, Lithuania, right? So we weren't named after a place. But I should, you know, I should look into it more about when exactly – I have a cousin who does a lot of family tree stuff, but uh, you know the Goldbergs and Greenbergs. Most of them had these other names when they came here, um, but I don't think they were forced to at Ellis Island. I'm open to correction on this. We'll find a good article or two on it. So why did it become Goldberg? I don't know. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I don't know. Um, uh, but it's not like all of the Goldbergs along the Eastern Seaboard are all that related or anything like that. You know, it's just, it's one of those names like Greenberg that a lot of Jews picked up on. Um, Maybe your friends uh, Jeffrey or Rube might be able to inform. Or Whoopi. Whoopi, that's yeah, right. Yeah, And uh, for years, every time I wrote about Whoopi Goldberg, I would always put parentheses, no relation, <laughs> um, which I just always thought was funny. Um, I'm also glad to, that I got to ask uh, Lincecum, Scott, uh, about this uh, this thing about giving lawyers ten bucks and then you can claim that they're your client for all eternity. Because um, I, I I've, look, I I I, I want to be really clear. I, I really hate this thing in the culture about oh, you know, your tears are delicious and and this, what I call in the book ecstatic Schadenfreude. Actually, I just found a bot on on Twitter that's it's called to own the libs bot. It just generates random phrases. Of things that you do to own the libs, like <sighs> one of the most. No, it's 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 a parody. Thing. Oh, okay, okay. So one of the most recent recent ones I saw was uh, loving the Star Wars prequels to own the libs. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Going to bed at a reasonable hour to own the libs. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Uh, that's actually that sounds pretty funny. I thought you were sort of saying that we've now outsourced even polarized tribal politics to Skynet, but um, uh. But I have to admit, as much as I'm a bit of a hypocrite on this, because I laughed really hard when the news broke that that Cohen's client was was Sean Hannity, and I think Sean's probably right when he says I wasn't really a client. I mean, it would be really dumb of him to lie too much about the nature of the legal work that Cohen did for him, because people are going to find out. But I just found it to be like some of the best. Gonzo writing of 2018 in terms of how our lives have turned into a reality show. And I just thought it was hilarious. And, you know, Sean has been incredibly unkind to National Review in recent years, making fun of the cruises, trying to cost us money. 
he constantly does this, or used to constantly do this thing with me about how, trying to paint me as the elitist and the sort of uh, globalist who goes around on his cruises. And I just found it so unbelievably disingenuous because here's a guy who like literally only flies private saying that, you know, going on a fundraising cruise to, for Holland America, which basically every other conservative organization out there, save for the American Enterprise Institute, does cruises too. I mean, is he, does he think the NRA is a bunch of elitists too? Anyway, he would refer to on Twitter the Jonah Goldberg class, which I always thought was very strange um, and a very lame effort to sort of pee from, you know, a great height on on me. But um, so anyway, I thought all that stuff was hilarious. I also just think it's hilarious because did you see this piece about I thought it was going to be really unfair. There was a piece at Red State um, on how Michael Cohen went to the worst law school in the country. And I generally find beating up people for where they went to school kind of lame and boring. Right. Um, And so I assumed it was either going to be like sort of an unfair shot at a mediocre law school or. A kind of funny shot at like Yale, Harvard <laughs> um, Law Grant. Yeah, that kind of thing, and um, uh, which actually would be a pretty funny parody piece. Like just going on, it's pass fail. Yale's this terrible law school. Look at all. But um, it turned out that like it was a pretty defensible claim that he went to the worst law school in the country. It's this place in Western Michigan that has like a the year he went had an eighty nine percent acceptance rate. <laughs> Wait, is it actually just Western Michigan? It's no. It was something called like Cooley something, and then merged later with Western Michigan, and maybe it got better or something like that. Okay, but like only twenty three percent of its graduates went into the legal profession. <laughs> I mean, it was like it's just, it's just like this awful um, law school. And someone asked me, you know, like, how does who are the eleven percent who got rejected? And I just assumed they were like prisoners, you know. <laughs> but um, and so what I think is funny about it is, is that it's. It, it it is such a rebuttal to this. He hires the best people thing, you know. Unless your criteria for Roy, for 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 Michael Cohen isn't actually his legal work, but his his sort of goon squad work, which maybe he's really good at. It's Tom Hagen work. Yeah, it's Tom Hagen work. Um, or even Chris Wallace. When I brought up the Tom Hagen thing on Fox News Sunday last last weekend, he was like, Jonah, he's no Tom Hagen. <laughs> um, uh, just sort of gets to the sort of core about how you know Donald Trump does not hire particularly much for competence. He hires for loyalty and and all that kind of stuff. But I got to say, for people who actually want to hire for competence, there really is no better place they could go to than Zip Recruiter. Uh, listeners can't <laughs> see my eyes roll. I, I, they did trust me. I saw this segue coming from several miles away. Um, I thought it was fantastic. Take that, John Pedoritz. So, are you hiring? Are you posting your position to job sites and waiting and waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. 
They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. So right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, so Jack, is there anything else that we need to, to, to cover before I get out of here and, and, and try to sober up? <laughs> well, I am sober, in fact, and th- that's the problem. Hmm. I'm crazy hungover. Drunk remnant? Yes, no? Uh, that day will come. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of owe Vodka, po- vodka Pundit um, a uh, a drinking podcast, which I had promised him a long time ago, but that's a different issue. When you do the drunk remnant, will you tell people that you are drunk while doing it or just leave them to, to infer or speculate? Um, I think it would be kind of fun if you could have a sort of like um, – if people were live tweeting the podcast, is when they just, oh my god, he is drunk. But uh, uh, I don't know. We we can we can talk about that. I mean, we should do like some more. We, we want to do more live event stuff, and I have no problem doing an open bar. You know, me and uh, the reason one of the reasons why Glop was created, the pod, this other podcast that I'm on, it's sort of the Gary's Old Town Tavern to my cheers in terms of the remnant, and uh, uh, was that. Originally, it was me, Rob Long, and Mark Stein used to do these sort of comedy night owl things on the cruises and for, like, the big conservative conferences that we would do. And we would just do this shtick, and it was a lot of fun, and it was pretty entertaining. And and so Glop, before it had a name, was really basically Mark Stein and friends, me and, me and Rob, and we would do... Glom. Yeah. Well, I came up with Glop much later. and um, And then Mark... Stopped doing it for various and sundry reasons, and we brought in Pod, and and we've done plenty of these sort of night owl things where the audience is certainly drunk. It really helps our jokes enormously. <laughs> but I usually bring a you know a whiskey up on stage and probably a bottle too. And um, Rob swans around with his red wine. Um, First time that I saw you give a speech while I was in your employ. Uh, was at the Hillsdale Kirby Center, and you just stood up there without a podium, just with a lavalier, holding a Corona in your hand. I remember that. Holding forth. It was just after the pants joke happened. That's right. That's right. Same week. Yeah. You mean after Donald Trump accused me of not knowing how to... Oh, yeah, that's right. It's not a joke. Well, it's a joke to us. That's right. It's a mystery also to us. That's right. So anyway, at Jonah Remnant uh, on Twitter... Again, when you say nice things or you explain why people should listen to this podcast, uh, that account, which is run by a artificial, very impressive artificial intelligence program. Um, it, ben Sass was worried about the Chinese edging us in artificial intelligence. They've got nothing on the remnant Twitter accounts. That's right. Intelligence. And it's almost up at uh, 2,500 followers now. It'd be nice to keep No, 3,500. 3,500. I'm sorry. And uh, – and occasionally, on more than a few occasions, I will tend to retweet that stuff too to the legions of Twitter followers I have. And please leave. We're still petering out before 2,000 um, positive reviews on iTunes. Subscribe if you can. If you've bought the book, that's great. If you want to buy the book again, that's great. I mean, it, you really should read it. But 
It also makes for great insulation. It can it it, it is a it's sort of like big style Lego. You can make a fort out of out of the hardcover. It doesn't work really well with paperback. Uh, but no, seriously, uh, you really should just keep buying it. I really appreciate it, and um, it'll keep me from getting fired from all sorts of places. It'll also make great kindling for when the West finishes its suicide attempt, and we are back in the state of nature. That's right. Yeah, um, in a sort of zombie apocalypse scenario, it would be useful, sort of like in the wire when um, Omar, it's Omar, I think, uses uh, phone books as a sort of body armor to keep from getting shivved in jail. Oh, yeah. that's Har- a, that's a, I've, They do that in Burn Notice, too. I've yeah. heard that before. Uh, so it would be useful for that. I mean, all I'm saying is it makes great reading, I think. I'm proud of it. But if, 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 you, if you're functionally illiterate, that doesn't mean you can't find a use for the book. Or you could listen to it on, on Audible, which I recorded, which is very exciting. So anyway, you can tell I'm rambling because I'm really functioning on only about three hours of sleep. And But thank you again for listening. We're going to try and do another podcast this week. Uh, thank you for your patience with the weird schedule here because the book tour is going to be bananas. So tune in next time and thanks for listening.